namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namassam So we're one-third of the way through our winter retreat. And um, one of the reasons why I wanted to give a talk tonight was because several people have uh, gotten in touch and they thought that I was sick and looked terrible, even depressed and fed up with running the monastery and they were worried about me Actually, the fact is I've just lost some weight and I'm very pleased about it. So I just would like you to have mudita with me for my having lost weight and not anxiety about me. Uh, I'm not depressed <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not fed up with running the monastery. It's, um, it's a wonderful situation to be in and, uh, and particularly wonderful while we're on retreat. Um, and it's an opportunity that uh, we're enormously grateful for, and I wanted also uh, this evening to, uh, I'm sure on behalf of all the community here, to express our gratitude to, to those of you that are making this possible. Uh, if people like you didn't support this place in the way you do, then we wouldn't be able to have uh, retreat situations like this. So I did want to, um, I wanted to just say something by way of encouragement for us all to uh, to keep the practice going, really, to remember that uh, perhaps the most important thing is to approach everything that happens as practice, you know, whatever's happening. How can we remember what we need to remember so as to keep practicing? That's the thing. There are times when we can get inspired, yeah. and uh, for whatever reason, maybe read a good book or something, and and the enthusiasm is there, and, and the interest is there, and we practice, and and we feel good about ourselves, and uh, realizing some benefit uh, from the effort that we're making, but then the effort peters out, and. We return to old habits and we lose the edge. And of course, so long as we come back, well, that's good. But what's better is if we uh, pitch our practice at a level that we can keep going. And so I wanted to, this evening, just to consider uh, together what we can do to keep the practice going, to keep the practice consistent. To be able to see everything as an opportunity for developing. Now, I hesitate to use the word development there. It sounds like you know, growth, the idea of perpetual growth, uh, the attitude that the rather deluded economists have about economic growth as if it's something that can just ha keep on happening at the rate that everybody wants forever and ever, which of course is a 
form of insanity. It can't happen that way. So that's not the kind of growth that I'm talking about. It's uh, Perhaps the, the word to use is purification. Maybe that works better. Uh, that to remember to be able to engage situations more often, more frequently, more readily, more willingly, in a way that serves uh, purification, so that we learn what we need to learn to be able to let it go. And, and we've all know, we've all had the experience of letting go to some degree, and and realise that you know, clinging is the problem. And these habits of clinging on all sorts of levels and resisting. Life is the way it is. Sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes it's not so wonderful and that we all know that. But what turns the fluctuations of life into a problem is our resistance. Even when it's uh, wonderful, we resist the changing nature of it being wonderful and we, we... hang on to it and want it to always be this way. And in a way we kind of spoil it. You know, the image I've often given of, of, um, of catching a butterfly. You know, you see a beautiful butterfly sitting on the buddleia bush and you reach out and grab it because you want to have this beautiful butterfly. And then you open your hand and you say, oh, well that's a pity. You, know, you just squash that beautiful butterfly and, and its beauty and its life is gone. We've spoiled it. How do we spoil it? Yeah, by reaching out and grasping. So we all know on some level that it's the habits of grasping that cause the problems and what we need to do is to increase the willingness and readiness and capacity for letting go sooner. So how to do that? Well, one of the things that uh, I spend my time thinking about, particularly while we're on retreat and we don't have a lot of interruptions, uh, and that is the uh, the meditation on on death. And I mentioned this on the New Year's Eve talk. Some of you were here for that, and you will perhaps remember I referred to it and and how the importance that the Buddha gave to this contemplation. Marana Sati, the uh, recollection or mindfulness on death. And, and again, to do this regularly. Yeah. And we have our own personal acquired habits of resistance or denial of death, but also we have the collective uh, habits and denial, the society's habits of denial of death, and for those two reasons, it's it's uh, wise to reflect uh, regularly on it, so as to undo those habits and resistance. Uh, and even maybe mentioning the subject of recollection of death, you know, maybe it it triggers a mood, and you know, maybe there's already you're feeling something. Oh, what does he have to talk about that for? Can't he talk about love and light? Well, you know me long enough to know that I don't talk about love and light. <laughs> I don't do love and light. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, if we do have such a feeling about death, you say, well, 
That's all right. That's a conditioned reaction. That's already something to look at. No judgment. Is that a helpful reaction? One of the things that uh, you just can't deny, one of the real realities that none of us can deny (laughs) is that we're going to die. This is one of the few things that once you're born, this is guaranteed. We're going to die for sure. And yet somebody mentions the word death and then we feel bad. Well, is that a satisfactory situation to be in? It's not, is it? And the Buddha recognizing this, uh, so he encouraged us out of wisdom and compassion, encouraged us to find a way of bringing our attention towards uh, the subject, to reflect on these two things. One, that it's going to happen for sure. And two, the other thing, these two, if we remember nothing else, these two points. One is that it will happen. Definitely all of us will be dead before too long. Yeah. And two uh, is that we don't know when it's going to happen. And these two points are really, really important for different reasons. Mm. And so to recollect regularly, to turn our mind towards these things, is a very skillful thing. And I personally, for many years now, this is a, a practice that I, I invented for myself. The first thing I do in the morning, and before, well, maybe go to the bathroom first, but after that, the first thing I do is go and bow to the shrine and offer my respects to the triple gem and then reflect that I was born alone and I'm going to die alone. And these two things are, even if, even if somebody else is with us, at the time, it can appear that, that somebody is there when we're being born. It can appear that somebody's there when we're dying. But the truth is, actually, as far as the consciousness is concerned, you know, you come into this world alone and we go out of it alone. And it will happen that way. And to reflect on this regularly is a, a wise and skillful thing. Right now, I uh, just heard the other day that uh, two Senior monks, two Arjuns that I know, have both had strokes and they're about my age and one has also got cancer on top of it. And Arjun Chandasiri, she had a stroke when she was my age and, and very nearly didn't make it. So we don't know when it's going to happen. And also while we're talking about that, those of you that haven't heard, now our good friend Jody is currently in the last stages. She's in hospital at the moment at Edinburgh. And uh, the doctor said that she won't be with us much longer. And so that's also been on my mind. And uh, Just the inevitability of it. Now, it could happen like that, where in Jody's case, or you, know, you, you get a prognosis, and in her case, she's outlived her prognosis by many years. And you've got a lot of time to prepare for it. In a way, that's very fortunate. Like, can't think of anybody better prepared than, than that I've known recently than Jody. All these years that she's reflected on it, and I was speaking with Ajahn Chandasiri uh, earlier this afternoon, and she's saying how peaceful Jody is, even though uh, it is very near the end, and uh, she's she's very at ease with it, and that takes skill. That's something really worth working on. Yeah, and when it comes home, when you see a friend. Dying is something that really uh, 
alerts us to it. So we don't want to miss the opportunity. I suppose that's one of the reasons why I'm flagging it this evening, is that when these things come to us, you know, a friend is dying or has died, uh, and you get this message or you just see some other death around you, the, the habit of the mind is to ignore it, to avoid it. And every time we do that, we compound the habit of denial. That's something we're doing. We're making the reality, the inevitability of our own dying and our own moving on through this period of what will be a period of great intensification, for sure. Uh, we're making it more difficult for ourselves. Uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa used to say that that uh, if you haven't gotten enlightened before you're dying, that's one of the best opportunities to do it you know, when you're dying because you're going to lose everything. And then he says it becomes glaringly obvious that what you're hanging on to was a mistake. You know, all the things we hang on to. Like our friends, you know, lovely. I mean, I've got some lovely friends and had lovely times drinking tea and sitting around the fire and having sharing. How nice that can be. But when we die, we're going to lose all our friends. Mm-hmm. Or health. You, know, you feel healthy. I can, I know when I, I get on a beach and you know, I'm home in New Zealand and it's sunny and there's nobody else on the beach and the waves are splashing and I just like 10, 15 years fall away or even 20 or even 30 years fall away. I mean, I feel really enthusiastic, whether it's perception or whether it's all in negative ions from the splashing water, I don't know, but I just, tremendous energy and you can feel this vigor and the chi is there and you just feel you could do anything. You just, oh, that wonderful feeling of health. Nice as it is, when we're dying, we're losing that. Yeah, health is a nice thing. Good friends are nice things. And the reality of death is that we're going to lose all these nice things. Yeah, we're not just going to lose all the problems and all the difficulties of life. Because, you know, sometimes when things are it's a drag and you think, oh my God, I'd be quite pleased when this is all over. <laughs> It's uh, not talking about that. It's the, it's the nice things that we're going to lose as well. Now, the reason for recollecting regularly, or one of the reasons for recollecting regularly on the inevitability and the undetermined nature of our death is that we don't invest too much energy in these nice things. Yeah. Of course we appreciate them. Of course we appreciate good friendship. Of course we appreciate health. Mm. But we don't reach out and grasp them. That's the thing. That's what the recollection on death is about. It's like helping us to inhibit that reaching out and grasping. And so, as Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was saying, that when you're dying, this is the message you get, that, you, that the grasping is not the way. But we don't want to wait until then because actually our dying may not be so much fun. You never know. There may be a lot of medication involved and or it may not be a very nice situation you know, on the side of a road somewhere or whatever. Anything's possible. That um, you know, it may not be an opportunity to reflect wisely on the uh, habits and the consequence of grasping. So the encouragement the Buddha gave was for us to reflect on it regularly now. And perhaps as, as I do in the morning as a regular ritual, or otherwise also, the thing when it comes to you and you see it near you, around you, 
it's happening. You think, oh, this is this is the consequence of being born. This is the consequence of being born, and this is what our ongoing reflection is. This is what our meditation is. And some of you will have heard the story of when Ajahn Chah was visiting this country, however many years ago it was now, maybe something like 35 years ago. He was over at uh, what was then the Manjushri Institute, Cornishet Priory in Cumbria, uh, well before it became an NKT outfit. Uh, and the uh, Sangha there had invited him up to give a talk and he inspired the community with his Dhamma reflections and and encouragement, and and then somebody asked him if uh, he would give them the the uh, the teachings on vipassana. He he said he would oblige and he would give them the vipassana teachings, and uh, but they had to all bring along a flower into the meditation. And so the next morning, um, they all turned up with a flower. And you perhaps have seen this photograph. It was printed on a calendar about 15 years ago. Beautiful photograph of Ajahn Chah standing there with a beautiful smile on his face holding up this, it was a magnolia flower, I think. Gorgeous picture. And just, and what he was saying to the people there, standing there in front of him, uh, giving them this Vipassana teaching, he says, Vipassana meditation means holding this flower and watching it as it dies. Now, I don't imagine that something that people wanted to hear because we don't want to hear that. There's part of us that doesn't want to uh, reflect on these things. But that's why the Buddha taught it. Yeah, that was why we have this encouragement. You know, we're not going to think of it ourselves. What we think of ourselves is, is uh, to look at the beautiful, uh, to not look at the ugly. And when uh, flowers go ugly, you cut them off and get rid of them. You, I think it was the New Year's Eve, was it? I talked about my amaryllis bulb that uh, Kath very kindly gave me. Well, my amaryllis has bloomed beautifully. It's just a bloom after bloom after bloom. It's gorgeous and it's still blooming. But when these gorgeous, huge, big flowers pass a certain point, they start to wilt and wither and I mean, they look really awful. I mean, there is nothing beautiful about a dead amaryllis flower. And they start to stink as well. You know, they're just not anything you want to have around. Well, it can be really helpful if we're serious about inhibiting our habits of reaching out and grasping in ways that spoil the inherent beauty of life. If we're really intent on learning how to inhibit these tendencies, well, to actually look at the habit of avoiding that which is ugly. Can we be very useful? Yeah. Not because we, there's anything weird about us or we're getting off on it and that. That's not it. I mean, you can do that, actually. You know, the kind of disfigurement of mind where you can start to get off on on death. That, that's, a, that's a mental disorder. And we're not talking about that. But rather when there is this feeling of it's ugly, get rid of it. I don't know about it. Say, so, well, that's a denial of life. That's... And that to the degree, the degree, to the degree that we do that, we're denying life. We can't really live life. That's another good reason to reflect on death: that all the energy that it takes to maintain the habit of denial gets released. Yeah. Rather than reflecting on death uh, being an unpleasant thing, 
It actually liberates energy because the habit of denial takes a lot of energy to maintain. If we want to maintain this lie, you know, because we're all, you know, sensible, intelligent people, we're all conscious, we all know that it's inevitable we're going to die. And and, uh, if we're not conscious and open to that reality, well, that means we're unconscious and closed to it. In other words, lying about it, and that takes energy to keep that lie alive and keep pushing it into the dark. And and so the conscious, intentional recollection of the inevitability of our death is actually actually something that liberates energy. It's a way of energizing us in practice. It helps us keep things in perspective. Like, for instance, the, the heedless habit we have of hanging on to resentments or bitterness, you know, disappointment. But one of the direct benefits of meditation on the inevitability of our death is that you can see that in perspective. Just, well, do I really want to be holding on to that resentment when I'm dying? That bitterness? I mean, things happen that are sometimes very sad in life, very painful. It can be regret. There can be remorse. You know, maybe we actually made mistakes. Maybe we're responsible for some of the painful, sad things that have happened in life. But that's gone, that's finished. And when we're dying, do we really want to be preoccupied with old bitterness, old resentment? Well, if we have a habit of hanging on to old bitterness and old resentment, we have that habit now, well, then there's a a risk, sadly, that when we're dying, that these things will come to us again. And these will be the things that our mind focuses on, rather than the opportunity to let go and realize what's there behind all the habits of clinging, the habits of clinging will uh, dominate. And so that's a a direct benefit of recollection on death, uh, the encouragement to let go of uh, old resentments, to the uh, forgiveness. And to also to to, uh, not waste time. to really maximize on the opportunities that we have. So there's keeping the reflection on the inevitability and the undetermined nature of our death in mind is a way, a very skillful way of, of uh, bringing into focus that which is the priority, yeah, not getting distracted, doing what we can do, cultivating what we can while we still have all our faculties. Who knows when the first signs of Alzheimer's are going to kick in. Several of us reach the age where we start talking about, well, I don't know how long it's going to be. When you go from one room to the next and you you think, what did I come into this room for? I knew I came here to get something. So, well, you know, basically those chemicals in the brain that used to be serving the function of, of uh, transmitting the messages, those chemicals are not being produced in the way they used to be. Yeah. And uh, so basically the messages are not getting communicated, just very simple biological fact. Um, well, it, uh, it can become uh, you know, a serious, serious condition, and as all of us are aware, and, and conditions like premature senility, can kick in or, or Alzheimer's. And what is going to be our refuge when this happens? I uh, 
take it as a great good fortune to have heard Ajahn Chah talk about this thing when, when his brain was going, you know, the, they had, he had that operation and, and uh, took some fluid off his brain and uh, it didn't work and so his brain started to malfunction from then onwards and it was uh, uh, downhill from there on. But before he lost his ability to speak, he was, he was talking about how, how it was. I open my mouth and I know I want to say, Sumato, come here. But what I hear my mouth saying is, Anando, come here. And I know what I want to say, but can't make my mouth say it. And he said, but the freedom lies in knowing that this is the case. There is a knowing that can be cultivated. There is a knowing that, be, that can be cultivated that is prior to this activity. Now, most of us take refuge in the activity of the mind, in the thoughts and the actions and the feelings. This is, this is what we. This is me. I am my thoughts, and if. My thoughts are my identity, or well, then my thoughts start to go haywire, or my body, you know, my body starts to go spastic, and my speech goes off. And, and if this is me, if this is really who I am, we've got a problem. We've got a lot, of, a lot of suffering at that point. But what Ajahn Chah was saying, I'm very grateful for this, was it is possible you know, to cultivate the knowing that is prior to this activity. Yeah, this is a possibility. This is, uh, yeah. And so they're saying when, uh, in most cases when people are dying, it's, uh, it's not a beautiful thing. Yeah, if you've seen people dying, it's usually a very ugly thing. Yeah, the body's withering like a, like a dead flower and it's just not beautiful. And it does, it stinks as well. Yeah, people who are dying, they, they don't smell good. Uh, but there can also be a beauty around people who have cultivated something. You know, they, maybe some of you are familiar with that famous, or well, those famous photos of Sri Ramana Maharshi. The guy, the guy was dying, but there was just so much light coming out of his eyes that even though his body was all twisted and distorted with, with cancer, and it was just hours from death, perfect equanimity, perfectly at ease. And, and that's the refuge, that's the possibility, that's what the Buddha was holding up and said, this is the thing to cultivate. So we're not dwelling on death because we're, we're somehow into getting miserable. Not at all. Quite the opposite. Say, how to be free from misery. And so he talked about the deathless. Or, or as uh, that's the refuge. Yeah. Yeah. Not our thoughts. Yeah. Not the actions of our body and speech and the activity. That's not the real refuge. The real refuge is, is, is the deathless uh, or in last month's calendar verse, you would have seen the, the unborn, unconditioned, the asankata dhamma, you know, that which is not born, that which is not conditioned, that which is not created, that which is not made, that which is not dying. You know, this is, there is this to be realized. This is the real refuge. And so to hold this up, you know, this is why we reflect on death, because that which dies is not the real refuge. And this is, a, I find myself, a wonderful meditation. Uh, done for many years, keep going back to it over and over again. What is it? You ask yourself, what is the unborn? What is the unborn reality? 
Well, what is the unconditioned reality? It's just that question. This is one of the most wonderful questions you can ever ask. What is the unconditioned? And then anything that pops up is not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. It's like falling back, falling back, falling back. This is what we're doing. We're reflecting on, on the death, the inevitability of our own physical death, but the inevitability of the death of all conditioned things. Because the real refuge, the only thing that's secure, the only thing that's going to go with us, the only thing that's really safe when we're dying is the unconditioned. And so what we're working towards is before we die, physically, if we can, to realize this. Yeah. That's a good life, if we can do that. If we can have a taste of the unconditioned, of the deathless, before we die physically. Yeah. And again, think about Ajahn Chah, that talk he gave to Pat Stoll in the book Bodhinyana. I remember there at the time that he gave this talk to this Quaker lady who'd come over to stay with him at the monastery. And, uh, and she was leaving, and she asked him to give this talk, and it's printed in that book there, and it's called Cobra of the Mind. And, and part of the uh, end of it wasn't imprinted uh, because... Uh, it was, it, was, it was personal, and but um, and he was saying this to her. He says, "Make sure that you that you die before you die. Don't die first. Die before you die." And he's talking about dying out of the habits of clinging to that which dies. You know, if we can release out of these habits of clinging to that which is a false refuge and realize the true refuge, that which is truly secure. So to help. Keep this going regularly. The meditation of death is a, is a great support. And to see what is a, where are we going for refuge to something that's not secure. Our thoughts and our opinions. Yeah. Some of them can be just so fabulously convincing, I find. I can have some opinions that I think are of great profundity. Yeah, and uh, I'm not alone, I know, because I read the newspapers and I talk to other people and people come and tell me their opinions and views, sometimes about me as well. But, <laughs> and uh, Are they a safe refuge, you know, like, or political views, you know, the way people go on about their political views and mostly they're just conditioned by what you've read. And what do you read? You just read what some... Uh, overpaid, unelected, unaccountable, coke-snorting newspaper editor wrote in some newspapers somewhere. Is that a safe refuge? (laughs) Not really. You see, I've got an opinion about newspaper editors. Which is okay, you know, you talk like this and then people say, oh, you're having an opinion. You say, well, we're not talking about not having an opinion. We're not talking about not living. We're talking about how we have opinions or how we live. Of course, you know. There's nothing wrong with thinking, but it's how we think. How we relate to our views and opinions. Do we hold our views and opinions up to being the ultimate refuge? Are they safe? Well, we're not trying to convince ourselves that they're not, just as a taking an opposite opinion, but just to, to look, to question ourselves. Is this a safe refuge? This utterly convincing view and opinion that I have about whatever... Or the emotions, the emotions that we have. Yeah. Oh, emotions can be just so convincing. Whoa. 
<laughs> My goodness. Yes, yeah. But that's just not reliable. Yeah, I remember this thing of of listening to a rugby commentator. I forget his name. He's a famous British rugby commentator. And he, he's screaming away there at some amazing goal that's just been sc- scored. And yeah. I'm not sure he even knew which side he scored for, but I started crying. <laughs> just that energy. That, you know how they hype it up. And, or the certain music. You, know, you can go to the opera. and You don't even know what they're singing about. And you can be crying. <laughs> you don't know what they're talking about. And even if you did know, you <laughs> probably wasn't anything worth crying over. So the, the emotions are conditioned. So the Buddha said the unconditioned, that's a safe refuge. Yeah. But even our serious emotions, you know, you, you know like sadness at loss, real loss, you know, or guilt, you know, feeling guilty about mistakes you've made in the past, the emotion comes up and, and you just feel, oh, yeah, that's just so real, that's just so ultimate. No, it's not. It's not ultimate. It can appear that way, but it's not ultimate. And how can we remember this? Well, the meditation and the recollection on, on death, that everything that's born dies, it can help, help us with this letting go. Yeah. Letting go of the false refuges. Our preferences, yeah. like, because we like something, we think it's good. Because we dislike something, because you dislike something, whatever, some goes against your preference and you dislike it. And so you just, this whole body-mind resistance to it comes up. And we easily take our preferences as, as a refuge. Yeah. Subtle ones, like in meditation. You're meditating and, you know, sometimes you're sitting there and you're so still and so upright and it can be like, there's just like a dynamo in your belly and there's this energy, this force field holding your body up and you're just, just there, really there. And, boy, that's really good. And what is that? Yeah, wow, that's really good. Okay, so it's not a gross kind of killies. It's not a gross form of greed, you know, like, fish and chips and, you know, lashings of vinegar and tomato sauce and mountains of salt and a good milkshake and all that. I mean, that's a, that's a gross preference, isn't it? And a gross chelators. There's also these very subtle, referred to as, as upakilases, very subtle preferences of the farm. It's distortions of the mind. That if we don't have our sights focused on a real refuge, the unconditioned, the undying, if we don't even suspect there is a real reality, if we don't have faith in that, well then we, we can be very fooled by conditions, mental conditions, emotional conditions. Yeah. And, and these become our, our false refuge. A few days ago, we observed the seventh anniversary of the death of a very dear friend of the community. Uh, some of you may remember Sushila Amarasurya, 
somebody I knew long before I came here. Uh, I used to live in Plymouth when I was uh, running the monastery in Devon. And Sushila uh, endured a, uh, a very aggressive, a very a painful uh, cancer for many, many years. And, and it's my understanding that the reason she was able to endure it was because of her meditation practice, the approach that she had towards it. Yeah. Most people didn't even know she was dying. She didn't want to spread it around. She, one reason she didn't want to spread it around was because people would start worrying about her. And she wanted to be able to stay with it, to really stay with the process so consciously that she learned from it. She learned what she needed to learn. Such an admirable approach. And, and I, I, I often, when I think about Sushila, I, I uh, remember the fact that her name, Amra Surya, you know, Surya means sun, and Amra is the deathless. And I, I like to think of her, and she was such a radiant being. I, I think her name is the radiance of deathlessness. And, you know, the, this was something that she cultivated. This, even when she was dying, even the very last hours when I went to see her in hospital, we were chanting the, the Paritas in hospital and the um, hospice together. And, they, and we finished, and she, was, she managed to lift her arm, and she was telling her husband where the tea-making things were so he could make tea for the monks, you know, because he wasn't paying proper attention to us. You know. Understandably, he was worrying about his wife dying, which was quite fine by me. But her commitment... The Dhamma meant she wasn't even disturbed uh, by her condition to the degree whereby she lost, focused. And, but that takes effort. And, and I know from the years of practice that she put, the years of effort she put into practice and, and the way she approached it. Uh, and once she was telling me how she, uh, her practice was climbing ladders. So, well, doesn't exactly sound like a difficult practice, does it? Climbing ladders, it can be quite fun, you know, you, look at life from a different perspective? Well, unless you've got a fear of heights. And Sushila was one of the people who had a conditioned fear of heights, a very strong conditioned fear of heights. And, but she decided that if her meditation was worth anything, she was going to be able to deal with this. She was going to be able to approach it. And so she took it on, something she found really difficult. Other things, you know, being sociable, social situations, or being a parent, or... All sorts of other things she didn't have any difficulty with at all. But this little thing she had a great deal of difficulty with. But she took it on. And so she would practice quietly when the kids had gone to school and the husband was off to work. She'd lean the ladder up against the outside of the house and she'd just take it one rung at a time, mindfully, reflecting on the approach to it, the whole body-mind experience of fear as it gets constellated, and how to outshine that conditioned reaction. That's the refuge. That which outshines the conditioned reactions. The awareness, the truth-discerning awareness. Satipanya, the knowing that is prior to the conditions. There's something that is really worth cultivating. If we do cultivate it, well then I think we have a refuge. We have something that that uh, protects us, something that sustains us, so that hopefully when our time comes, um, we will be in the, uh, the maximum, we'll be able to find the maximum benefit uh, from the opportunities that dying gives us. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.
ಅಂಡಮಯಾಂಡಮವ